Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello, and can you feel that? It's season eight of Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions, and we couldn't do this program without the serial killer whisperer herself. (sighs) Ran out of breaths just saying that. Hello, Amanda (laughs) Howard. Hello, Robert McKnight. It's great to be back, and and it's almost our second anniversary, which is actually next week, I think. Wowzers. Yes, we've... uh, been going for a while. We've got a lovely bunch of people following us and listening yes. to the podcast every week, which we love. We are thrilled to be back for a big season eight. Amanda, what can we look forward to in season eight? Um, a lot of different things, actually. So we're, we're going to keep to our serial killers. We're going to travel all around the world, not just focus on, on your US killers, which are a very easy thing to do. But, um, you know, we've got some Canadians and some Aussies coming up as well. And it just proves that, you know, we've, we've gone on and on with this show and, and we're finding great sources and it's been a lot of fun. It has. And uh, we are certainly hoping for season nine to move over to a video podcast that would be fantastic if we could because so many times i want to talk about the body language and the facial expressions Mm. and everything that we can't do on a podcast but talking about being on tv robert the fantastic ben robin robert show is going fantastic i see (laughs) thank you we're we just finished our second week uh we do a show here in australia but you can watch it anywhere in the world it's monday to thursday at one o'clock Australian Eastern Standard Time. Uh, Amanda, I'm loving doing this show. It's hot topics, it's news, it's uh, entertainment. And, uh, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun. And we get some pretty good guests as well. And uh, I I'm, I'm, want you to come on the show. I'll get there when we have a big story to do, I'm sure. It's just, but anyone who likes to hear about the gossip about uh, TV and all of that sort of stuff, if, if you're but not this isn't on even the TV. Night, this isn't no, even TV. No, it's not, but no, because there is some hot topics and mm. things like that that you do that I'm loving. But, of course, I always have the inside knowledge on what's happening in the world of television, so we'll continue to, <laughs> to do that. But, look, today we're covering Gerard Schaefer. That's right. And it's an interesting case. So much so there was so much information out there, but I found one clip that was just so shocking that I've I've focused on that one as much as I can mm. because it tells so much about what kind of guy this, this man is. All right, we'll be getting to that a little shortly, but in the meantime, let's get to the news. And 22 people have been killed during a 13-hour crime spree in what has become Canada's worst mass killing. Gabrielle Wartman committed multiple shootings and set fires at 16 locations in Nova Scotia while impersonating a police officer. He was shot and killed by police. Here's how the news was reported on Euronews. Several bodies were found inside and outside one house in the small rural town of Porter Peak. 
and other homes had been set on fire. The shooting lasted over 12 hours. Police initially stated that they had arrested the suspect, but later announced he had died. Police have identified the gunman as 51-year-old Gabriel Wardman. He died in the shooting spree, which began on Saturday night. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke about the incident during his daily coronavirus update. Before we get started, I want to touch briefly on the unfolding events in Portapique, Nova Scotia. I know we've all been watching this on the news. My hearts go out to everyone affected in what is a terrible situation. I want to thank the police for their hard work and people for cooperating with authorities. I think uh, Justin Trudeau has just doubted himself as a time lord. He said, my hearts go out to uh, <laughs> the people. Sorry, I don't mean to make light I'll of it. That, that has to be a Doctor Who It quote, is a Doctor so. Who reference. Uh, <laughs> the Doctor has two hearts. Um, in all seriousness, though, um, a tragic situation, Amanda. Um, there, but there's a new report out linking this tragic event to domestic violence. Yes, it's something that a lot of people don't don't think about when they see um, cases like this, and, and and Charles Whitman is another one that, that comes instantly to mind. That often when these rampages happen, they they often start or end with um, their most important target. So you know, Charles Whitman killed his his wife, um, you know, and and this man started with his own family as well. So it it becomes a link, and it's an explosion of violence that's often been. Um, that there's been a catalyst to it. So obviously where the shutdown and all that sort of stuff, um, there is a lot of domestic violence going on and there is a lot of domestic violence killings going on, um, that this is just the same thing on such a massively grand scale. Mm. But, yes, so many mass shootings and things like that actually start or end with family being killed. And that's the case here? Yes, it is. Yeah, so um, he he took out uh, several members of his own family. Beside, but besides, then going out and randomly shooting people as he headed to other locations that um, were targeted by him. Yeah. All right. Police in California are looking for suspects in five unsolved killings. According to the Crime Stories with Nancy Grace podcast, authorities reportedly suspect that all five homicides are connected to the same so-called serial killing gang. But a motive for the murders is still a mystery. One of the cases involves the brutal murder of a teacher gunned down in front of her son. Amanda, it looks like CCTV could hold some hope in this case. Yeah, and this would be a great thing to show on our TV show. Um, just throw <laughs> that in there. Um, yes, yeah, so they've identified several cars that have been linked in this case and um, and it's actually been during daylight hours, these shootings. So it's, it's been quite shocking that um, we have five deaths so far and several other injuries. So they're saying it's a gang purely because we know that there's a driver and a shooter. So this is sort of going back to like the DC sniper sort of thing and there seems to be no... Um, motive for the people that are selected and they're um they're they're black and they're white so 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 it's no sort of racial gang happening as well so it'd be interesting to see what comes up but yes they definitely have some very good footage on cctv from uh, local residents well we will keep following that story Mm -hmm. as it comes to hand in the coming weeks Serial killer Mark Nash has lost his fight for damages after lodging a claim over delays in his trial. Nash, who is serving life sentences for the notorious Garangamon murders, stood trial 18 years after he carried them out. He complained that his right to a trial within a reasonable time had been breached and had sought damages. The judge denied his request. Amanda, with so much time on their hands, 
This is what killers do, isn't it, when they're in jail? They look for loopholes, they look for distractions, they're always trying to use the law. Yeah, it's it's amazing how, how they talk about their own rights um, when they don't care about the rights of, of the victims. And yeah. this frustrates me time and again. <laughs> Granted, yes, 18 years before he actually stood trial is a very long time, um, especially because you are supposed to be treated as innocent until proven yes. guilty. So 18 years, had he then come out of this with a not guilty plea, then, you know, the, the state might have gone for huge amounts. But... Um, Killers do this a lot. You know, Bobby Jo Long was constantly telling me about, you know, this case that was going on and that case that that was going on, all these different things and all these different lawyers that that, that come in and tell them that, that they're going to get them freed. I mean, just yesterday they, they were talking about the possibility of Gary Ridgway being released with the coronavirus. I mean, it's just insane. But they find these excuses and talk about how their rights have been breached. But, you know... How about their victims? You know, yeah. this man has been in jail, yes, granted for 18 years without trial, but he's there for I will say I do murders. think that's ridiculous because it is. while pretty much everyone possibly knew he was guilty, he's still entitled to a fair yes. trial and the presumption of innocence and waiting 18 years for a trial is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it is crazy, but, you know, at at the end of the day, this is how it's played out and, and he has been found guilty. And the thing is that um, if I remember reading correctly, um, the reason the judge denied this application because he lodged it six months after his trial. So um, if it had been lodged before then, he may have actually had a case. Well, exactly. See, he was playing it both ways. He thought, well, if I'm not guilty, then I'll go and do the bigger case, which would be worth millions mm. in, in, in funds paid to him. So he's done this afterwards purely because he was found guilty. Right. Now, before we move on, you wanted to acknowledge the death of Brian Dennehy. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people well know that Brian Dennehy's had a fantastic career over the years, but uh, for me, uh, he was more John Gacy than John Gacy in in, um, To Catch a Killer, which is literally about uh, the case from the last boy being taken to him being executed. And it's just an amazing cat and mouse game. And Brian Dennehy did so well in the part that I just, you know, it's sad to see someone who is sort of linked to the true crime genre um, dying with all of that this is currently going on. But, you know, I just, I just wanted to say, yeah, he he has passed away and he did a brilliant role as John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, absolutely. And, look, uh, if you want to follow the Monsters Who Murder team, just go to facebook.com slash mwmconfessions. There's a group page and a Facebook page. And don't forget to give us a five-star review on your favourite podcast feed. That will help other people find our podcast. In the meantime, our psychological profile on Gerard Schaefer is coming right up. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And Robin Robin. 
media executive Rob McKnight. Something brand new is coming to your social media feed. Big Brother winner Ben Norris. This is something bold and informative with a side of humour. And journalist David Robbo Robinson. It's truly going to be something different. Robin Robbo Show starts April 20. Go to tvblackbox.com.au slash BRR for more information. It's the Ben Robin Robbo, Ben Robin Robbo, Ben Robin Robbo Show. And the Ben, Rob and Robbo Show also has a Facebook and Twitter page. Just go to BRR Show. BRR Show and you will find us. Meanwhile, let's move on to our psychological profile. And this week, our psychological profile is of Gerard Schaefer, a self-confessed serial killer who claims to have murdered up to 30 women, though he was only sent to prison for the 1972 murders of two teenagers, Susan Place, aged 17, and Georgia Jessup, aged 16. Both of them had been tortured before being murdered and buried at Hutchinson Island, Florida. At the times of the murders, Schaefer was a Floridan deputy sheriff and was previously a police officer. So let's begin with Schaefer introducing himself on a French documentary series called Two en Série, French for Serial Killers. Well, I was accused of originally, originally accused of killing 34 women, but nobody has ever managed to come up with 34 names, jurisdictions, or anything else. It's a false accusation. And what is your conviction? I was convicted of killing two in Fort Pierce. I was never shown to be at the crime scene. There was never any link between me and the people that were killed, except the testimony of the mother of one of them. Man, we've heard this a hundred times. It's false. But but watching this clip really gave me chills. Explain to our listeners what we're seeing. Uh, Well, Schaefer is actually grinning from ear to ear, you know, and he does this in almost all of the interviews I watch. He thinks he's a rock star and he is adoring the attention. He just wants to be the star of the show and he knows that whatever he says, everyone is listening to. Um, There was an extra piece of footage I, I was looking... There's an extra piece of footage I was looking at where he was asked to sign something and, you know... He's going, oh, wow, how do I sign this? What should I write? You know, it's like he's, you know, Stephen King. He was just totally loving it, mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking that he he's so wonderful. Um, but watching this, I was I was actually, the, there was something I couldn't put my finger on watching this, and I watched it several times to try and work it out. I mean, he just seemed so boastful that there was a humbleness to him, that, that there was this, this meekness that seemed to belie this rock star persona. So it, it was just something I couldn't quite profile, you know. And his sheriff, who who was the one that actually ended up finally arresting him, um, described him as cherub face and wholesome. But, you know, he wasn't fooled for very long. You know, the sheriff worked it out quite quickly. But there is this um, this yin and yang to, to his personality that that – you know, you would you wouldn't think he would harm a fly. He's he's that sort of man. You think, oh my god, he's so timid and everything, but he has this Cheshire cat smile that just takes you to a place that's um, too terrifying to even comprehend. Mm. Um, so he's in there saying that he's basically trying to say it's false and he's innocent. So did he actually end up confessing? 
Well, there's apparently multiple confessions, and um, Sandra London, who's who's a true crime author, um, claims that sh- she had actually spoken to him at great length, and he had confessed. And there's people who were in prison with him that said that he he confessed. He wanted to be the biggest and the best, and this is what this is all about. He wants to be um, the most terrifying killer without giving away the whole game. Mm. All right, we'll get to his arrest and how he was caught a little later on, but. Well, let's come back to this idea that these killers are hiding in plain sight. You said this guy was wholesome, cherub-looking. You know, um, they really are friendly, the guy next door that you wouldn't think is a serial killer. Absolutely. And he was able to keep that persona going, you know, and yet what we find out is that he had all these different paraphilias. So it wasn't just about um, sexual pleasure, but there was a deviance and a, a way that he actually controlled these victims and had power over them. You, you know, his his, ta- his attacks were really long and torturous and he actually made the pleasure last for as long as he could. He, he wasn't one of these that goes in there, kills them and walks away. He was would make his victims drink a lot of fluid, often alcohol, um, not just to get them drunk, but so then he could watch them urinate. That's a he thing, a though, fan. isn't it? That That is a thing that some people are into, watching people urinate and everything. Yeah, but he, t- he took it further and there's um, issues of him making them drink it and he also had a faecal filia oh. and, um, and, and he would take photos of his victims during the sexual assaults um, and also while he was killing them and also afterwards because he would continue to rape the bodies until de- decompensating. So, oh. um, and it was only then that he would bury them and then he would actually dig them up and use the bones as well. I mean, this was about pure... Um, humiliation of his victims so then he had that power he continued to control them but it wasn't this standoffish he was right there touching them continuously he had no desire to do anything except be physically with these until basically they were dust how how is that humiliation when they're completely dead there's just a bone how uh... I mean, they, they don't know what's going on. That You know, like, whatever your belief is, they've left the body. Um, so how how is that giving him gratification and, and, and power and dominance over them? Well, there are people out there looking for these victims. There's uh, many of his victims that they haven't even found and every so often bones get dug up and they believe it could be part of him and um, a, a part of his crimes. And it's it's about that. He knows that everyone's looking for what he's done. And so being able to sort of feel the bones while he masturbates and things like this is just how he just continued to live that rock star feeling that, that right. he had. So it, it's about that. It's, it's about that big umbrella of all the people that, that are touched by his crimes. So it's interesting. We've got some killers who will just wham, bam, kill and move on and and even get their sexual gratification. And we've got this guy who doesn't just rape and kill them. He really, he keeps them and, and, and enjoys that aftertaste in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, some killers go in and and death is almost as if it's a way to hide the actual crimes of of rape and assault, whereas for him, death was actually part of his ritual and he knows that you can only kill someone once, so he would choke them to the point of um, unconsciousness and then bring them back and do it again. It was about that 
um, prolonging the torture to make sure that what was happening would continue for as long as he he could, you know. And then there was the post-death rituals of rape and mutilation. He he was doing all of this because he now owned them. They were part of him. He is the only one who knows what happened to them because he was the only one there at their last moments. Mm. Well, interestingly, during Schaefer's interviews with the French documentary, knowing that Schaefer wouldn't confess to his own crimes, the interviewer asked the killer to profile the crimes of Ted Bundy, who was housed in the same wing as Schaefer. He starts by asking how much Bundy would have fantasised about his crimes. Was he reliving all the time his murders? Well, I wouldn't say all the time, but I took the... uh, He told me that he had followed my case in the detective magazines and that he had killed two girls in Washington as a copycat crime, so to speak, on the place in Jessup. And I think those were Ott and Naseland. And he, was, he would tell me that he took them up on the logging road and, and strangled them and had sex with their corpses and went back and had sex with their corpses and cut off their heads. Like, it's a tribute. And I'm thinking, you motherfuckers that wrote that. I said, here's the guy who read it, believed your bullshit, and went out and did something like this. And now, he's like bragging to me. It wasn't exactly a brag. It was like a tribute. How many did you get, really, Jerry? They said 34. Did they get all up? Or did he have private graveyards? I said, Dad, I'm the best. What can I say to somebody like that, right? What can you say? You're... You're left without any kind of rational response because if you say, Ted, it's all bullshit, he's going to say, no, it's not. I know. And he knew, see, because he had lived it. And I hadn't lived it except through what was written about me. And he was doing it based on what he had read. So he he had 36. (laughs) He wanted to be the best. And he was obsessed because they said I had 34. And he was afraid that I had ones that he didn't know about. And he was always trying to get me to say, no, that's all I got, 34, you know. (laughs) But I never would say that. I, I discerned that he was concerned about the number. And it was my own way of needling him back by saying, I'm the best, Ted. You're going to fry, and I'm going to be here, and I'll be the best. Just like they said, the number one, Mr. Stone had it all right. The best there ever was. And you're nothing. <laughs> and just go crazy. Can't be. And I'd take out my little thing from the Palm Beach Post. I said, Read that man, cult, first page, Palm Beach Post, cult. 
This is amazing audio. I don't think we've had any audio that matches the level of detail in here, Amanda. There's so much to process. Just a quick thing before we begin. He mentions um, Stone. Who is Stone? Stone was the prosecutor in his case who, who was the first one to say that he had at least 30 victims. Right. Okay. So, right. Um, where do we begin with this? Well, I mean, when I played this for the first time the other day in a very, very long time, there was just so much to unpack that this piece is how you look at a, a psychopath. This is like, you know, class 101. Um, he allows that persona to slip every so often when he's talking about Ted Bundy and he does it in such a way that it's about him and, you know, the in, interviewer did this because he knew that he wouldn't talk about his own crimes. Instantly, the first thing he starts talking about is how Bundy wanted to be as good as him. Yeah. And this is <laughs> and this is what is so amazing about this thing. And um, there is things in here that he said which I've been able to validate as completely bullshit. So it's going to be interesting, but we need to unpack this and do it step by step. Well, that, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to go back over this piece of audio piece by piece. So let's go back to uh, near the beginning. Was he reliving all the time his murders? Well, I wouldn't say all the time, but I took the... Uh, he told me that... Did you hear that, Robert? He slipped up. He said, I, instead of he, as in Ted Bundy. So, ah. you know, we are less than 10 seconds into this charade and he's trying to be the scary monster that even, like, the one that Ted Bundy looks up to, but he isn't that clever. <laughs> so, you know, instantly, I mean, eight seconds in, he does, he notices, but he doesn't. He doesn't quite get that what he just did, only few killers do that because they're so tuned into what they have to say. But he was like, okay, you're going to let me have this story about Bundy and I, or uh, he, you know, bang, instantly right. fucked gotcha. it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to the next part. He told me that he had followed my case in the detective magazines and that he had killed two girls in Washington as a copycat crime, so to speak. What do you make of that? That's an absolute braggart. You know, he's dying for this type of opportunity, as I said earlier. He thinks he's a rock star, and this is how you play the game. At the time of this interview, and he'd been in, in prison for about 20 years by that time, and he'd been conversing with people like Bundy, so he knows how, how huge Bundy is. So if he makes himself out to be bigger than Bundy, then, you know, he, he must be incredible mm. in, 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 in the sense of being a serial killer, obviously. You know, and so he tries to ingratiate himself with these killers, um, and he wants the adoration that Bundy got. You know, we know Bundy. Everyone knows Bundy. But how many people really know Gerard Schaefer? I mean, people that do this know, know him, but not a lot of people do in comparison to Bundy. Mm. So if he puts it out there that he's better than Bundy and did better things and more things that, than he did and that Bundy's crimes were a copycat of his crimes, you know, it means that Bundy is the copycat and being a copycat is... Um, it's not as empowering had, as the figure of Ted no, Bundy we no. know. Exactly. It's it like to, to be a copycat means that you have sort of not the skills to go out and do things yourself. So he's trying to say that Bundy copied him because he's the best. It's interesting. I will say, weirdly, 
There's something likable about Ted Bundy. There is nothing likable about this guy. This guy just feels like a fraud. This guy just doesn't seem like you can believe a word that comes out of his mouth. I always felt with Bundy, once he he was caught, he had charisma, but once he was caught, he was just like, here it is. Here are the facts. I'm going to tell you, you know, like I don't care anymore. This guy's playing another game. And it's a bullshit game. You yeah. know, he he is basically um playing it for what he can. He's he's trying to make himself out to be this amazing person. And the only way he can do that is by saying that, oh well, whatever he did, I did it twice as hard and twice as long. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's all it is. Yeah. Well, he goes on to tell the story of his conversation with Bundy. Let's have a listen to that. And that he had killed two girls in Washington as a copycat crime, so to speak, on the place in Jessup. And I think those were Ott and Naseland. There were several points in that very short piece, weren't there? Absolutely. He doesn't shy away from saying the names of his victims, but he does slur them. You know, it's as if um, he's just trying to sort of rush through the names of his victims. But then when he talks about Bundy's victims, which are the Lake Samamish girls, um, he pauses as if he has to think about what their names might be and then says, you know, Ott and Nasland, you know, making it because they are big cases besides the um, the mega killings. This was sort of the next second big part of, of Bundy's killings because he took two girls from the same place on the same day. And a lot of people know that part of the story. So he has to now ingratiate himself into this further by saying that these two girls are a direct copycat of Place and Jessup. But it's the way he does it and the way he slurs over his victims' names, but he's happy to pronounce Bundy's names because Mm. that puts him again in that conversation. Well, we can really hear that in this next piece. And he was he would tell me that he took them up on the logging road and and strangled them and had sex with their corpses and went back and had sex with their corpses and cut off their heads. Like, it's a tribute. A tribute. God, Schaefer seems so bloody pleased with himself here. Of course he does, you know, and he's going into the details of the crimes, i.e. what Bundy did, but it's to say everything he did about his own crime. So this is how uh, this interviewer has got him to talk about what he's done is by saying what Bundy did I had exactly done as well. So without him actually saying that, he's saying that Bundy had read about him and decided to do the same thing, not that we're both sexual perverts and this is what we did to kill the same number of victims um you know there is people i've I've spoken to over the years like ivan malash um that would actually talk about their crimes in in the third person so what we need to do with this is sort of think about um schaefer using bundy in place of himself so Ah. so you've got to think about that way so what he's saying about what bundy was doing he's actually saying this is what i was doing because he knows what's happened, and by saying that Bundy is a copycat, he's saying that this is what I did. Is Bundy a copycat? No. God, no. No. Bundy did all very weird and wonderful things. He was he, – well, not wonderful, obviously, but he did <laughs> he did things very differently and did things his way, and he was very much – though he was quite organised because he had, you know, like his, his kill kit and things like that, um, most of his victims were people of opportunity, whereas Schaefer sort of – 
didn't do that as much, but he would still sort of pick out different girls. But they were two different killers doing two different things. Yeah, it, right. It, there's, there's no He's looking for parallels yeah, to yeah. try and claim credit, basically. Yeah. Now, you, when you watched the video, you saw something else in there, didn't you? It took me a while, that so much so that I went back on this tape and, and started to time it. Throughout that 20-second piece just then, Schaefer does not blink. And mm, really? People, yeah, and if people watch um, Silence of, of the Lambs for an example, Hannibal Lecter doesn't blink. And right. that's what we're seeing here. And, and this is shot basically that Schaefer's face takes up the entire screen. And he has these big, thick glasses on, which sort of makes his eyes look even larger. But it is weird that he goes for so long and not blinks. So I was actually doing patterns to see how long it would take him to blink. And he doesn't blink. He does it very infrequently. And when he does, it's it's one quick, short one, and that's it for an, like a, the next extended piece of time. But it is so amazing that when you listen to this fully, he doesn't need to have the interviewer in the room. It, I can imagine him lying on his bed with a tape recorder saying all of this. This has nothing to do with anyone else in the world. This is about him being the star of the show. And so he's keeping eye contact with the interviewer, but really he's not seeing him. He's not even in that room because he is so involved in his own drama that he doesn't care what else is going on. And there's a tell, isn't there? Yeah, he, he has a tell in that every so often he would look away and it's just a glance, but it's like that he's watching things over and over again. It's it's his way of um, going off on a tangent um, and usually it's, it's bullshit. This is his moments <laughs> when he is telling the bullshit lies and when I've been able to verify that they are lies, you know, it's like, yep, I've got your tell. Ah, and Amanda, we know you don't do bullshit. <laughs> you tell it like it is. <laughs> Yeah, my husband used to call me a human lie detector, my poor kids. Oh, my God. It was hard for them too, you know, because I, I pick up on vocal cues and eye contact and they can't get away with much. And I have questions that I ask them that they don't know if I know or I do know or I don't know and all of this sort of stuff that they that they know it's not worth trying to lie to me. You can ask my son today. We've had a big fight about that today. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and this is what happens. Schaefer tries to tell these little bits of detail that – he thinks makes it sound better, but it can be verified as false. Yeah, okay. Let's get back to Schaefer's response about Bundy. You motherfuckers that wrote that. I said, here's the guy who read it, believed your bullshit, and went out and did something like this. And now he's like bragging to me. It wasn't exactly a brag, it was like a tribute. There's that word again. He's so, it means so much to him, doesn't it? It does. And um, he's, he's trying to say that the article about him um, was fictitious, but Bundy had read it and was inspired and did a copycat killing two years later. You know, Schaefer's actually cheering. He, he, he believes his own bullshit. And this is actually what he wanted. You know, Schaefer, as I said, is gritting like a Cheshire cat all the way through this. And, you know, he smiles so constantly that um, he does have that, that cherub-looking face. Like those that have watched um, Happy Death Day and that there's the guy in that that wears that big fat mask, that's exactly what he looks like. It's just his round ball. I mean, but it's friendly looking. Like I have resting bitch face and everyone knows I do, you know, <laughs> but he has the opposite of that. He has this face that you would think, oh, you know, he's he's going to have on, you know, an ugly hat and an apron and doing burgers on, on the weekend. 
you know, but no matter his expression, it's it's he still smiles regardless. He he has a very smiling face, and he knows that that is going to get him a long way. And so he keeps playing this game, and the smile just makes it ten times worse. Mm. Well, in this next bit, Schaefer's voice starts to soften. How many did you get, really, Jerry? They said thirty-four. Did they get all up? Or did he have private graveyards? I said, Dad, I'm the best. What could I say to somebody like that, right? He plays the drama well, doesn't he? He certainly does. He's thrilled to be playing this role. It's as though he has this written down and obviously it's in his his brain that he knows how to play this, you know, and so he even does the whispering between two incarcerated felons that are talking to each other and they're whispering about who is the better killer. And he literally says there, I'm the best, and then goes, no, 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 I'm joking, I'm joking, but he wants that out there. He's saying those words because he wants them to believe that this is what Bundy thought of him. Is that why it's so important to write Bundy off as a copycat? Because it diminishes Bundy, who had built a reputation, and it um, props him up as the big man? Yeah, it does. Copycats, as I said, are just this second-rate loser. They are the people that couldn't come up with their own sort of style of, of, of crime, which is horrible, but this is what they do. They all have um, their M, their MO. They all have their signatures, you know, and to be the best, we have to be better than the best. And Bundy is up there as one of the best in, in those terms, yeah. serial killer. Um, you know, so he wants to be ranked higher than that. And, you know, it's not that they rank themselves, but they do – do this and we're going to see this next week if we get to the case I'd like to do that they want to know what they're doing and want to know that they are up there because it also gives them safety you know if if they're the best well then Bundy's not going to hurt him because he's better than him kind of thing there's all Mm. of that sort of ego that goes on as well let's have a listen to a bit more what can you say you're you're left without any kind of rational response because if you say Ted it's all bullshit he's gonna say no it's not I know and he knew see because he had lived it and I hadn't lived it I have never known a serial killer so obsessed with another serial killer well, the only other time that I've heard this is that we had Carol Bundy, um, that, that Douglas Clark, her partner, was saying that she was doing copycats of Ted Bundy's cases and he tried to do all of that as well. But this is what they try and do sometimes. They they play each other off. And I've actually literally had serial killers write to me and say, why are you talking to this other serial killer? I'm better than them. You know, <laughs> this does happen. There is those that, that enjoy being bigger and better and amazing and they try and throw things at you to impress you all the time. Um, and, and it seems big. There comes a point where it's almost like he has to keep reminding himself that he's pretending he's not guilty of these crimes. Yes, that is where he brings himself back to reality. He needs to keep saying, oh, yeah, but I'm innocent. Yeah. You know, though the fact that Bundy says, I'm sure you've done more than 34, he goes, yeah, maybe I have, ha, ha, ha. Oh, no, but I didn't do any. You know, it just he, he keeps going around that. Just it's as you said, it's about him trying to convince himself. Well, let's pick up where we left off. Because he had lived it, and I hadn't lived it, except through what was written about me. 
And he was doing it based on what he had read. So he, he had 36. <laughs> he wanted to be the best. And he was obsessed because they said, I had 34. Do serial killers really keep count? I think some do and some don't. I mean, in this case, we have two sexual serial killers doing comparisons. Um, they they do keep account in that they remember that they're occasions and they remember the victims. Um, they don't sort of keep, you know, one, two, three, four, five. You know, counting is actually rather arbitrary. It's about the ability to um, remember the, the crime itself and the fact that the numbers get up there. It's It's just sort of a additional fact that Yeah, because it's don't. more about the sexual gratification, it right? It is, it is. And and towards the end, Bundy was going off into the hundreds, so, you know. Mm. Schaefer then says something rather interesting. And he was afraid that I had ones that he didn't know about, see, and he was always trying to get me to say, no, that's all I got, 34, you know. <laughs> but I never would say that. Why wouldn't he just say to Bundy, yeah, you got me by two, I only have 34 and you claim to have 36? Because this is power, you know, and, and Bundy, according to Schaefer, is basically crumbling at his feet and begging to be as great as Schaefer is. Do we you believe know, this? No, no, yeah. absolutely not. You know, and Bundy, before his execution, as I was just saying, actually went and confessed to Moore and said, you know, give me a stay of execution and I'll tell you where, you know, a hundred more victims are. So um, the fact that he's saying that he said, oh, I've got 36 and you've got 34, and then he goes, yeah, but I didn't, you know, it's just part of this conversation. And, you know, it's just what they do to, to play games and they, they can't go out there and kill anymore. So they have to, you know, just screw with the minds of, of the guy in the next cell, basically, you know, and this is just a Schaefer just showing pure hedonistic pleasure, torturing Bundy by playing this game of cat and mouse. Do I have more or don't I have more? You know, and, and Bundy would have wanted to know. Yes, and then he takes it even further. I discerned that he was concerned about the number and it was my own way of needling him back by saying, I'm the best, Ted. You're going to fry and I'm going to be here and I'll be the best, just like they said. The number one. So much in there. I discern that he was concerned. He's whispering. He's yeah. tormenting of Bundy that he's going to fry. Yeah. See, so what we have here is, you know, the spider has the spider has caught his fly. You know, Schaefer is the spider. He's on his web. He can feel the vibrations. He knows the fly is struggling. And Schaefer is basically torturing Bundy by dangling this in front of him. You know, he's just saying, I'm coming for you because I'm going to say once you're dead that I had more and it's going to be like you're going to fry in hell and I'm going to be the biggest and the best and I'm not going to the death penalty like you are. Yeah, what was that about? Well, Schaefer, when he was um, found guilty, it was during the time that the death penalty was off off the table in 1976. So he couldn't get anything like that. Basically all he could get was a life sentence. But Bundy was a few years later, once the death penalty was reinstated, he got the death penalty. So he, he played that against him as well, like, ha-ha, you're going to go any day now and I'm going to still be here. And this interview was actually done two years after Bundy was dead. And, and, and he just kept reminding Bundy of that. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you can't get your victims that you want to rape and torture and murder, what do you do? You, you play games with, with psychopaths. He did this for pure sadistic pleasure. That's all it was, was to say, ha-ha, I may have more victims 
than you and I got a lesser sentence than you. Well, he gets even quieter before bursting out with laughter. Mr Stone had it all right. The best there ever was. And you're nothing. <laughs> and I just go crazy. Schaefer says he was the best there ever was and Bundy was nothing. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine the competition between these two, you know? And as I said, Schaefer's still around two years after Bundy is dead. So he can say whatever he wants. And he knows that, you know, Bundy is still in the news two years after his death. This this interviewer comes in, doesn't talk to Schaefer about his victims. He says to him, tell me about Bundy. So there's that anger as well that sort of puts this in that he said, I was the best, I was better than Bundy. And so he plays this game of all these conversations he was having with Bundy because he wanted the, you know, the Mark Harmon films being made about him that were actually being made about Bundy. They didn't do it. And so this is him playing this game, even though Bundy's dead, you're still asking me about him and not about me. So he has to prove he's better and Bundy was nothing. Well, I've never heard of this guy until we started prepping this podcast. I've known who Ted Bundy was for a long time, so I guess his plans didn't work out. No, of course they didn't. You know, it's just basically that people who look at serial killers, they go for the higher counts anyway. And the fact that Schaefer only has two solid convictions means that he's sort of way down on that list of serial killers. I mean, even on my um, my database I've got, he's way down there. He's mm-hmm. nowhere near even close. You know, two victims basically doesn't even make him really a serial killer. It's just that we know that there's other victims that they're positive he did, but they never got him for them. Well, Let's go back to the audio and hear how the whispering continues. Can't be. And I'd take out my little thing from the Palm Beach Post. I said, read that, man. Cult. First page. Palm Beach Post. Cult. I'm the leader of the cult. There you go. Can't be. <laughs> He was a sickie. I tell you what, I'd hate to be listening to that at 3am in the morning. Yes, it would it's be fun. scary <laughs> as all hell. Yes, it's fun when you're doing a podcast prep. Oh, you were like listening to it at 3am. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's my life. We all know that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty chilling. And, and the way he whispers the word cult, that he's a leader of a cult, mm. the head honcho, you know, he's got front page headlines to prove it, according to him, that he did more than, than Bundy, that he was bigger and better. At the end, he comes back to reality with his week. He was a sickie. It's almost childlike. Yeah, I mean, he'd, he'd gone to have this place of whispering. You could um, see the interviewer is actually sort of leaning in trying to hear him because it is a whisper. Thankfully, the mic picks up everything. But, you know, he's trying to say that Bundy is a monster, but there is no emotions during all, all of that, you know, and he's he's laughing and joking around. You know, he loved to tell that story. He wants people to know that he had made Bundy pathetic and he was a sickie, like, you know, just just, just an off-the-cuff remark. Now, look, you've done some research and some digging around about his statements. We touched on this before. Tell me what you found. Well, the Palm Beach Post archives, I went digging because that's what I do at 3am, and there is multiple front-page news stories about Schaefer, but there is nothing that links him to being a cult or a cult leader or anything like that. Not a thing. There is 12 front-page stories about Schaefer. 
but nothing about a cult. So mm. then we start to think, you know, how much else of this is bullshit and that's when we start to go, yeah, I don't believe much of what he has to say. But you did find something interesting. I did. Um, on one of the front page newspaper articles, um, Schaefer's wife actually divorced him, which is un- understandable, but then she marries his... his and, but then she marries his attorney. Like, she's 22 and he's 45. Good luck what? to them. But, yeah, so she sort of remained linked to, to her ex-husband because of his attorney, who remained his attorney for decades afterwards. How was Schaefer finally caught? Well, um, it was actually three months before he killed the two teenagers. He actually had abducted and tied up two other teenagers. Um, However, he was actually on shift at the time and he got a call over his CB radio to attend a scene. And he was a deputy at the time. Yes, yes, that's right, a deputy sheriff. Um, So he left the girls tied up to a tree and went to answer the call and when he got back um that they had escaped and they'd actually gone to the sheriff's department to complain that they had been abducted and uh, assaulted and um schaefer actually turned up later and said to to the sheriff you know i've really messed up here i abducted these two girls because they were hitchhiking and it was about teaching them a lesson and so the sheriff said well show me what you didn't you know because we have to get this down because this is an official account and so he took them he, he took the sheriff out to the the forest where he abducted them and tied them up and everything and went through the whole scene and you know obviously downplaying his part of it well he was arrested and charged with those two kidnappings and then he was released and continued to work believe it or not and then three months later he abducts and kills these two girls when they find their bodies the sheriff realizes instantly it's the exact same passion uh-huh. as the two other um Attacks, so they were instantly knew that Schaefer was was responsible for this, and he was arrested soon after. Then, when they get to his house to to start searching it, they find a lot of jewelry from other missing girls from the area. Right. Well, Schaefer was sentenced to life imprisonment, and once in prison, became a vexatious litigant. Aye, that's someone who files frivolous court petitions against the police and true crime authors. However, all of that ended on December 3, 1995, when, at the age of 49, Schaefer was stabbed to death by fellow inmate Vincent Rivera. Amanda, this is a crack with a case to start season eight off with. I know, it certainly come left field for me. It was a case that I knew of, but it wasn't one that I thought was going to be so spectacular. But uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff there on only a few short bites, but it was certainly worth it. Indeed. Well, we will see you next week for another edition of Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. Until then, I'm Rob McKnight. You can find me at Rob underscore McKnight on Twitter. You can find Amanda at AmandaHoward73. Amanda, we'll see you next week. See you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 